Hello and welcome to this week's programme. Tonight we'll hear a lot about faith in action, how beliefs inform and guide the lives of our guests. If you want to sing out, sing out by Cat Stevens there, the stage name of Yusuf Islam. A much loved piece of music for actor, playwright and psychotherapist Isabel Mahan, who's been finding her voice through her Buddhist beliefs. We'll chat with Isabel shortly. And Father Michael Kamein OP joins us in the studio. He's a prolific writer, a former teacher and journalist and a chaplain to St Luke's Hospital in Rathgar, Dublin. He shares his views on the Holy Spirit and where it can be experienced in everyday life. But first, the European Union and other Western powers have pledged to ramp up pressure on Belarus after it forced a Ryanair plane to land so that an opposition activist on board could be arrested. The impact of these sanctions has included no flights from or over the country by EU airlines. The immediate effect of this is being felt by many, including our first guest this evening. Brother Liam O'Mara, a Christian brother, is the founder of the Burren Chernobyl Project, which was set up to help the child victims of the fallout from the Chernobyl reactor explosion in 1986. Brother Liam has dedicated almost 30 years to supporting the children and residents of state-run homes in neighbouring Belarus. He joins me on the phone from his home in Ennistymon, County Clare now. Brother Liam, welcome to The Leap of Faith. From being a teacher in Ennistymon, you've gone on to establish children's orphanages and homes for adults in Belarus. But let's go back to the early 90s. What was your first impression when you arrived in the country for the first time? My first impression, believe it or not, was that things weren't too bad at all. Um, And I actually had decided at the end of the in my time outside to come back and, and more or less go back into school and forget about the place. But it just so happened that I came across um, a lady called Maria Mitskevich, um by pure chance. And um, on the day before I left to come back, she said, look, will you come and see this orphanage out the road? Um, so she brought me out to chair of an orphanage and that kind of changed the whole thing. If I hadn't met her, if I hadn't gone to that orphanage, I, I don't think I'd have taken the decision to get us fully involved and, and keep on going. Um, because I hadn't seen the real um, worst-case scenarios in, in the uh, orphanages for the special needs people, you know. So that changed everything. What did you find? I found um, 200 and, or 250, 300 children inside in an orphanage in pretty awful conditions, um, all shaved heads and dirty and smelly. And, um, you know, when you'd go into one of the units, you'd take a deep breath outside the door and hope you wouldn't have to breathe again inside. And you wouldn't know whether they were boys or girls or um, what was what. Um, so, uh, you know, things were very, very bad. They didn't have hot water. They didn't have soaps and shampoos and everything like that. So it was a bit of a shock to the system to see how it was. Um, and I'd say after coming back, I, I was about a month before I began, really began to sleep and get over it. But I just began to tell people here, I knew good people here, and that we'd do something. And so we began um, and to go back out and do what we could and um, to get involved in any way we could in helping them. And here we are now, 20, 25 years later, we're still at it. How are you perceived by the government and the president there? Um, Well, I know that anything we do, the president signs it. His name comes up at the end of the documents. Um, uh, How I'm seeing myself, I don't know whether he has any awareness of of me or or myself, but... um, 
rather than the president, but the ministers himself would be very grateful and would be um, helpful in any way they can and appreciative. And sometimes they'd come directly to us looking for help for a family that needs it to know if we could do something. And it might be, you know, provision of a wheelchair or some incontinence products, whatever, that they wouldn't have access to themselves at the present moment. Um, so we'd be fairly well known and... Um, I think, you know, fairly well regarded as well for what we do. But I wouldn't be any personal contact with at, at that high level myself and, and the president um, so far anyway. Well, we obviously know in the news of the the diversion of the, the aircraft over Belarus yeah. airspace and and, yeah. and how anybody who has a dissident view might be perceived. Uh, are you yeah. concerned or worried about being able to go back and to see what's actually happening there? Yeah, I plan to go back next Friday um, through London or through Amsterdam to get back out. And I needed to get out because um, we have some children outside who are on peg feeding, you know, through the stomach. And they don't have the peg feeding tubes. And uh, I was to bring some out of those. Um, it's strange that they would do operations and start to peg tubes and then not have the access to them you know, locally. Um, so I wanted to get out back out next week and that's cancelled, like, you know, so um, I'd go on a bicycle now if I could get out there because I want to get out there, I need to get out there. Um, so I'm just looking for some way to, to go. But it, it's, um, can, of course, it, it's politically um, difficult and there would be a certain amount of fear and apprehension about going there. But, um, you know, there are people who need what I have to bring them and uh, so that's the, that's the problem. And when the EU cancels our flights, they don't think, you know, how it will affect myself bringing peg feeding tubes to a child in an orphanage in Belarus. And I'm not blaming it for them, but it's just that that's the way things happen politically, you know, so it's difficult. Yeah, but um, so I, I'm, I'm looking to see if there's any possible way of getting out. And then with the COVID, and you have to have a PCR test three days before you go. So it's very hard to plan a flight and get the test on the flight. And is there a flight and isn't there a flight? And, you know, that kind of little logistics of it, it makes it difficult. It sounds though you're no better man to actually try and overcome those particular uh, mm. hurdles as well. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, you do. You have to overcome them, like, you know, and uh, we, we, we manage more things. And we have a good network of people outside now on the ground. Um, our most recent truckload that went out there, they're working on that now and doing all the, the paperwork and custom work to get around it. And with this now, uh, in terms of getting out, it might be possible to get a, to Moscow and get a train back into Minsk or something and um, hopefully not be refused at the border. But um, we're keeping an eye on it. I mean, things could get worse. But um, I was just on there to Minsk while ago, and um, you know we've did the paperwork for the last truck has come through very quickly from the department, so um, we we think that's a good sign. But you always keep an eye, keep your head down, and hope for the best. Where is your funding coming from? Our funding come, is coming from wonderful people here in Clare locally and from our volunteers. Every year we have about 150 volunteers going out every week of the summer to work in the orphanages. Um, some of them are very regular, faithful volunteers over the years. And then the last couple of years we had some wonderful transition year groups from uh, down in, in uh, Wexford and in Wicklow and we had some of those going out. And they all do a little bit of fundraising. Now last year was difficult, but... Um, uh, at the same time, thanks to online and I donate and that we had uh, able to keep things going and get the funding uh, in what we needed. And we were spending a good bit of money now on oxygenators and, um, you know, UV lamps and oximeters and these things for to get them all out to the afternoon as best as we can. So uh, it comes from uh, local people are very good here and um, it trickles away and thanks be to goodness um, but it's a, a, a constant job like you know but luckily we, we, we're we not paying anybody a big salary to run the thing or anything so any money we get in 
you know, pretty well goes on, on, on everything we need to do outside. How did the orphanages get through the uh, the pandemic? Um, well, chair of an orphanage now, the children's one, they had about 41 cases earlier on at the time. It was very, very difficult for them because the children had to move, move to hospitals and in the new environment, they couldn't cope with the change and the staff in the hospital wouldn't have been used to the ways of some of the difficult children who were, you know, as the staff in the orphanage would be used to them. Um, so then they had to have moved them back into the orphanage, which meant they were moving them back in with the virus. But luckily in the, in the children's orphanage, they survived. In another orphanage called Gorodici, the staff did a two-week-on stint. Nobody went home, nobody went in, nobody went out. They stayed in the orphanage for two weeks, and then the next group of workers would be tested before coming on to keep it out. And they kept it out right up until uh, November. Um, fair play to them. Um, but they got in then. But again, they survived. The one who got this um, uh, survived. Up in cool and adult place, where we were over 500 people, um, 24, 25 people had died early on from it and um, we're, we're just not looking forward to going back and seeing who's gone, you know, because you wouldn't know, wouldn't get all the names over the, the phone. Um, so the people we'd know and who's there, who isn't there, how they've done. So it's been difficult, very difficult in some of the adult places in particular. They've started now the vaccination program outside using the Chinese vaccine. Um, so that probably will make a difference. But the other side of it then, that the workers, whether they had the vaccine or not, had to go to work because there was no uh, PUP, no support payment if they stayed at home. So um, if they didn't go to work, they got no wages and, and some of them just had to keep going. So, you know, it's so difficult. Final question to you, what keeps you going? What keeps me going? Um, well, it, it's nice to help people, isn't it? And to be able to help people. And sure, what else would you be doing if there's somebody there who needs a bit of help and you can do it, why not do it? And I think we're good support here and, um, you know, from a lot of people. And while the bit of money keeps trickling in and while we have the strength to do something, sure, why not? We might as well do it. I just keep going because I suppose um, I like to think it might be important and valuable and worth doing. And you meet wonderful people there, so you couldn't just turn away and leave them at this stage. Brother Liam O'Mara, thank you for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely talking to you and thanks for having me on. My next guest this evening will be well known to many of you. As an actor, playwright and occasional agony aunt with Dahi and Moore on the Today Show on RTE. Her own production, the comedy play Boom, was very well received when it ran off-Broadway, as were her TV appearances on Glenrow and The Clinic. During all that work, she had a long-term commitment to the practice of her faith as a Buddhist. Isabel Mahan joins me now. Welcome to the programme, Isabel. The audience this evening will know you for many things, but we're chatting to you this evening because of your long-term commitment to Buddhism. That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. I've been um, a member of the Sokka Gakkai International for 33 years. We chant at Nam Renge Kyo. And um, yeah. I started way back when I was about 26 and I've been going, you know, chanting daily ever since. But the idea that somebody maybe 30 years ago would have decided to turn away from, you know, the faith they were born into towards Buddhism. What was the motivation for it? What got, what got you interested in it? Well, that's a really good question. I was born uh, into the Church of Ireland, um, which I've still got uh, great affection and respect for. Um, I think that they're, they're uh, wonderful people and very broad-minded, and I would have nothing but good to say and think of them. 
But um, I think I was I think I was always a bit of a seeker. Um, I did philosophy and English. I was my part of my degree in Trinity. Was um, and I think I really needed. I felt I really needed um, a faith that I had to work for me. It needed to, rather than to just be something that I kind of went as a visitor, I really need, I needed something that would work for me. And um, I found that uh, a friend of mine had started, she said she'd started Buddhism. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like, who's a Buddhist? Seriously, who's a Buddhist? But, um, you know, in, in, in Dublin in the, in, in the late 80s, but I was looking at her and I, she, she seemed to be getting really, really making extraordinary changes in her life, you know, in, way, in very practical ways, like, you know, weight and her, her, her weight, losing weight and, you know, finding relationship and finding confidence, things like that. I thought that's the kind of thing that, you know, I, I need something that's really going to help my life. And I think that anyone who's um, in, I, I think anyone who's very self, maybe self-employed, anyone who's creative, anyone who has to really fall back on their own resources a lot, particularly acutely feels the need for inner support. And um, so I, I followed my friend. I thought I'm going to keep an eye on her now because this is this is something, she's got something that's working. And and that's when I started. Um, I, I went to a, a meeting in in Monkstown in somebody's sitting room, and they were all sitting there in their little woolly jumpers. Nobody looked exotic. Nobody looked. There was no flash, and yet there was something really extraordinary about the people. They had they had a quality about them, and I thought, well, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to hang in here because this this is something that I want. And I suppose I I started that evening. And I've been chanting twice a day ever since. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the chanting in a moment, but I, I'm curious to know about somebody at that point in your life, where, as you say, born into one faith, and a lot of people mm. at that point, if there's, there's, there's a crisis of faith, they turn away from it altogether, but you didn't. Mm. No, but I never, I wouldn't say I ever really had a crisis of faith. And the interesting thing is that my about five months later, my mother started to practice as well. And she's now 94 and she's still going um, you know, she's st she's still she's still with us and she's still practicing. I I didn't. It wasn't that I turned away from anything. It was that I was seeking for. I I felt the way I described it was I felt like I was locked out of my own life, like I was running around a tower. You know those round towers that don't you have to have a ladder to get up to the the, the first. That's the idea. Um. So I I I realized that I felt like I was locked out of my own life, and when I started this practice, which is what you do is you chant and you reveal your enlightened, the enlightened aspect of your, you know, your, your, your higher self, I suppose. And then you start activating that corresponding vibration in the environment, whether it's people or situations or whatever. And um, I think I realized that I got the key into my own life that I'd been almost, yeah, locked out of. Mm. And in the same way as in all faiths, I suppose there are many versions of it. So can you give mm. that distinction for us of, of your version of Buddhism? Well, it's um, it's quite interesting because in terms of the, the Christian faith is probably, I mean, OK, we've Protestant and we've Catholic, but they're relatively similar. I think it's probably greater differences between the different Buddhist schools. But um, 
the, the form of Buddhism I practice would be based on Mahayana Buddhism, which is the, the sort of later form. Theravada would be um, in the more the Southeast Asian countries. So this would be, um, I think, Tibetan Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism would, would be more based on Mahayana Buddhism. And it's based on the Lotus Sutra, which is the, one of the later of Shakyamuni's teachings. And um, because his teachings evolved over his life, and he was a he was a he he traveled around India. He preached um, various stages. I suppose they were what what would you would say was they were preparatory teachings because he was talking to a population that were. Um, largely uneducated so he was using parables he was using he was working with people from where they were taking them to the next stage so if you like the lotus sutra is at the the final stage of his life it was kind of his his final uh, one of his very final teachings and really um if you read a translation of it what it is is almost life praising itself it's it's hard to describe but if you read um if you read a translation of the Lotus Sutra, and they they are out there, it's um it's it's almost like it's so wonderful, it's so wonderful, it's so wonderful. So it's almost like life is a miracle itself, rather than being mm. in, instructive. So it's like you're 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 tapping into that connect, you know, tapping into that life condition of um enlightenment, really. As we come to the end of our chat this evening, it might be appropriate for us, uh, as you say, to explore that chanting a little bit further. Uh, can you set mm. it up for us and then we will we, we'll hear what the chant entails and, and what it brings to you? Um, well, if uh, anyone who's seen the Tina Turner movie um, when, when she was leaving Ike, she had started to, to chant Nami Horenge Kyo. What I normally do is um, I, we have a, a practice of Gongyo, which is uh, reciting uh, passages from the Lotus Sutra. But normally I just have a bell, which is like a, a bowl shaped bell. And I hit it with a, a, a stick, a donger. And um, then we chant Nami Horenge Kyo. So, um, and as people listen to this, what should what should they do? Um, well, if they want, <laughs> if they feel like it, they can join in or they can just listen, just simply listen. That's that's all it is. It's it, what it is. It's it's it, it's the sound vibration that corresponds to the Buddha nature. And when you activate that, that sort of resonates. You know, like you send out a a, a radio signal and you can pick it up on the corresponding receiver. Well, it's kind of like that in the environment. Isabel Mahan, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you very much, Michael. Nam yo ho renge ko 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 Finally this evening, joining me in the studio is a man who's a regular contributor to the Irish Times. He also writes a daily blog on his site, Occasional Scribbles. He's the chaplain to St Luke's Hospital in Rathgar in Dublin. Father Michael Kamein, welcome back to The Leap of Faith. It's four years since we last spoke to you and you just started your work as chaplain in St Luke's. How has it been? It's been an extraordinary job. You can't really say you enjoy the job. But the privilege of meeting people, listening to people, talking with people and the staff 
I have the most privileged job in the land. The staff in St. Luke's. Just magic. Um, COVID, ha the, first, the first dose of COVID, if I could use that word, back in March last year, because of my age, I had to cocoon. I found that very difficult. But I'm back now full time in the hospital and I'm back now visiting patients full time. Our numbers are down because of COVID. I have found the ransomware episode as something, it's like slapping somebody in the face when they're down. I find that difficult. Um, back to the job. Faith, my faith, my faith is a dodgy faith. I'm always nervous of people when they tell me they know what God is thinking because anything we say about God, we have to be very careful. And any, I remember from our theology, anything we say about God is said in terms of analogy. So, but this job, because of our fragility, maybe, maybe this is a cop-out on my part, but because of our fragility, and I see that fragility every day, I'm inclined to find myself being pushed towards a God. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bit of codology. I don't know. But, um, and I'm there now, Michael, as you say, from probably 2016, 17, that period. I'm amazed. I have seldom, if ever, met an angry person. I seldom, if ever, meet somebody now, I have to be careful saying this, who's afraid, afraid. And being a Catholic priest, I'm sometimes, when I went there first, I was scared that I'd be sort of thrown out my ear by patients or by staff. The opposite has been the case. I think I've met mm. one person who, because I don't dress as a priest and because I don't have father on my, na on my name tag, she felt I should have let her know I was a priest because then she wouldn't have talked to me. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's funny. But but yeah. outside, and I was just there. I only started at the job and I was I was thinking, gosh, is this what the future is going to be? But, you know, it's a lovely job. Today I was talking to a patient and she was back a second time. And I have to be very careful of confidentiality here. But she comes from the same county that my mother came from. So we'd lovely chat about just lovely chat about this and that, about where that place is. And it's an amazing job. And maybe before, when I, you know, I worked in newspapers, I was a school teacher, and I'd often, wa but I can't get over sometimes, after a day of that job, you can be extraordinarily tired. And that sometimes baffles me. Why am I tired? Well, I'm getting older as well, of course. But, um, and then the staff, I have met, I've met such extraordinary people in the hospital. I've made great friends in the hospital. It's a great job. I, I, I'm curious because we're, we're here between Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. And uh, you were writing in the Irish Times recently about this particular idea of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you, really, is the Holy Spirit in St. Luke's? The Holy Spirit is, uh, well, as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. Everywhere. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God in the world now. It's an amazing idea. 
um, talk, mention a little bit about my mother and father. My mother died, I mentioned this in the piece last Saturday, my mother died in 1988 and dad died in 2004. There is never a day in my life when I don't think of them. And when I do something that's right, I'd say they'd be proud of me. When I do something that's not right, I'd say, oh, they wouldn't be happy with me. Their spirit, their memory lives on in me. And my parents were mere human beings. And if I believe in God, and I don't exactly know what either of those words mean, belief or God, but if I believe in God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, if the spirit of my parents sustains me to do good, what must the spirit of God in the world be? I mean, when people, you know, or if somebody in the hospital says to me, oh, oh, father, you know, I'm, I'm not a Catholic, it, it, it really annoys me. It really annoys me because we are all children of God, aren't we? You know, it's, 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 what, what's the division? I mean, okay, theologians might be given out to me, and, but I mean, isn't it a historical thing? It's a finance thing. It's a power thing, a control thing. Um, do you think God is up there saying, oh, Catholic, oh, Protestant, oh, Jew? Surely that's not, that's not, that's not my faith. Go into that just a little bit more detail no, for me. Don't, don't be trying to catch me out now. <laughs> I get me into trouble. I get me into trouble. <laughs> I'm far in enough, be it for me to Michael, do that. Michael, I'm in enough trouble. <laughs> there, there's this, a phrase that's going around these days, which is, you know, a, a version of being a Catholic you know, or Church of Ireland or Christian light. In other words, the person who's got some of the beliefs. And one of the harder beliefs that's still there for people is this concept of, a trinity of 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 a holy spirit and for some people the holy ghost if you're old enough mm. uh, how how does that fit with people because you know as i said you people may have a basic set of beliefs but that's the big the, the big challenge for people that isn't is. it? to hold on to that one yeah. and the trinity next sunday is trinity sunday i think it is isn't it yeah it is mm. um and when we were when we were studying theology and you'd hear people saying oh it's impossible to talk about the trinity now maybe i i am naive and maybe i'm very simplistic but the tri Look at we talk about communion. The Trinity is about perfect unity between three persons. And every time you or I does something good, we are enhancing, we are making presence, the present uh, presence of God in the world today. The minute I am what they don't call them junior ministers any longer, um Ushin Smith the man who's who's involved in this hacking business he when the when the hack when the ransomware thing first became evident he referred to what they did as an immoral act he used the word immoral and i thought it's a fabulous word because the community damage had been done to the community and christianity if it's about anything it's about my relationship with other people and with god I'm, I, I'm saying these days, and I, I'll be hit in the head for saying this, I think we have, uh, I'm going to make up this word, we have piosatized, pi pi you understand the word? I've made it up I right got now. it. Yeah, we have yeah. piosatized pi the mass out of existence. Lord, and when I think, you know, when I see the gap, and this is a hobby horse of mine too, but when I see, when I see the wonderful people that I work, with whom I work in St. Luke's, the staff, 
and then the patients had a different but I'd know the staff naturally more intimately and I'd have a better relationship because patients come and go and when I see their goodness and when I see their Christianity and yet the institutional church appears not to be touching them I have to say that my focus my life is with the staff I, I, I was doing something I mentioned it some time ago but I, re- I came across something he was an American priest he died he's dead he died I don't know when he died but he said the nicest thing that you could write on a priest's headstone was he was a kind man and um, that really took my fancy you could say that about anybody though what more would you like to say than she or he is a kind person Father Michael Kamein, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. Before we leave you this evening, we'd like to mention the sudden and untimely death on Wednesday last of Pordrick Meredith, the composer of The Cloak, a musical about the life of St. Bridget. We featured Pordrick's music on a previous programme when we spoke with his colleague Pordrick J. Dunn, who wrote and directed the production. From our producer, Sheila Callan, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and me, Michael Cummins. Good night. <laughs>